good afternoon. And welcome to Why Is This a Thing? We uh, took a, a week of bereavement for Nick's beloved Cincinnati Bengals. Yep. His <sighs> beloved bandwagon, Cincinnati Bengals. I've been a longtime fan. Long time. <laughs> Many years. Decades. Yeah. Well. Since Chris Collinsworth was their starter. Such a big fan, I moved here. Is that what it was? That's why you that's, moved? <laughs> that's what drew me here. <laughs> Those bangles. Those bangles. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we were going to do like a, a, a bangle-related podcast. We were going to do the film Eye of the Tiger starring Gary Busey. But we were going to record it before the Super Bowl happened. And we we're going to pretend that like the Bengals won, irrespective of the actual result on Sunday. Yes. But Nick was too devastated in the days <laughs> following. Uh, he couldn't. Well, we, we, we weren't able to record before. And right. then uh, after it happened, it was just, yeah, it was too tragic. He was inconsolable. Well, one of, one of my favorite things about um, that time period, you know, after they lost was the ideas we were throwing out. So yeah. there was a very short point in time where we discussed doing leaving Las Vegas yes. <laughs> for the podcast. Uh, in as tribute that, of all the money that I lost and all of the drinking that Nick did. But it's like a like a good movie. Uh, yeah, it's a good movie. <laughs> uh, I I don't know. I thought it was a little strange, but we I were was just looking bit... for a downer. You know, there's many a better downers we could have gone with, though. <laughs> yeah, we, we didn't want to watch a Holocaust movie, Adam. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, at that point, <laughs> <laughs> might as well just dove straight into it. I don't know. D- done a full full fledged like kill me a thon level upsetting movie. Uh, one day we'll do another kill me a thon. Yeah. I, should, I think I, I have my list prepared for you guys, by the way. Should we do it in April, maybe, Nick? I'd love to. Like Will you have the time? April? No. Or just... Oh, one, while I'm there? One night, yeah. Yeah, this is my question. Are we going to meet up together and watch the movies together like you guys did? I think we yeah. have to. Okay. I'm I don't sure have to... I can, I can spare a night. I can spare a night. I don't have to do that much work for this one, though, guys. I'm, I, I'd be excited, but... <laughs> You got. <sighs> Do we dare? It's been how much? It's been what? Eight years? Oh my god! Since the last Kill Me a Thon? Since Kill Me a Thon Volume One? Seven, right? Seven. Yeah, seven years since then. And it was also in April, I believe. Do we oh return to the scene of the crime? Or maybe May? Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you know what we should probably do first, though. Introduce our guest. Oh yeah. <laughs> Who's been sitting there patiently? Yes. I was wondering if we were just going to like see how long we could go before yeah, we felt the need to interject. <laughs> to out. Okay, campers, rise and shine. And don't forget your booties because it's cold out there. Because it's Groundhog Day, right? That's what we're doing? <laughs> That's right. We're doing Groundhog Day. Okay, good. Yeah. DeFeo, are you aware of what Kill Me a Thon is? I am not. I, I was sitting here quietly because I was hoping that eventually you would get around to some exposition. No. As as I'm told, so uh, no, please you, explain what Kill Me a Thon is. This and is some deep lore. This yes. is some ancient Ooh. mythology Ooh. buried in the origin story of this yeah, podcast. That, yeah, uh, you should guys should go to the Discord server then for this and uh, <laughs> unscroll it. <laughs> what? <laughs> I love that. If you're not a newcomer to the pod, you know we're not we're not very generous towards people who are fresh to this. So this is actually not, the pre-Adam era. Of the it pod. is. I'll, just, I'll qualify that. Adam, just you're not very generous. No, I'm not. No, 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 no. So this this episode we're just, uh, talking about here, Kill Me a Thon, was uh, I believe one of our first episodes 
as why is this a thing was the first episode as why is this a thing? I, it might be the first because there were some that didn't get published or something. episode number one yeah hmm. and it was actually for a very long time our most successful episode yes for like over a year yeah yeah. Uh, until we did like an episode of Pretty Little Liars, and then we became like the number one oh, Pretty yeah. Little Liars podcast on the internet for about twenty four hours. We were no, it was longer ha- than that. It was hilarious. We happened to jokingly do Pretty Little Liars, like I, just the first episode for no reason. Yeah, and only after we released that episode did we learn that the next season premiere was like the next day. Sure. Oh my god. But like, and if so you, that gave us a yeah. little boost. If you go to iTunes, the ethos of Pretty Little Liars. <laughs> I think we were trying to introduce more women into the podcast. I think. Right. No, that's exactly. Yeah. That's exactly the way to do it. Yeah, that's what we were. We were trying to not be so sexist by only talking about male things. You know. I think to this day, though, if you go on our iTunes page and you look at the section of listeners also subscribe to, you'll see like Two Cents Radio, The Nico Show, all of our shows or whatever, and then you'll see like five Pretty Little Liars fan podcasts. <laughs> I'm not joking. Guys, I haven't seen a single episode of Pretty Little Liars. I couldn't really tell you the plot. I have seen a single episode, (laughs) and it was that day, seven years ago. (laughs) Oh, no. Yeah, that Um, was really big. We also became the number one Horace and Pete podcast on the internet for a while. That is true. Uh, That's not very hard to accomplish, though. No. I would imagine. No. Uh, Let's see. Weren't you guys the the biggest uh, anti-Michael Jackson podcast for a while, too? Still are. Yeah. Still are. (laughs) (laughs) Like anti-child rape. Uh, we are known for that. Did you say anti anti child rape or did you say no? No, I just rape? stuttered. I just stuttered. Okay, I was worried that you were accusing us of being no, child rapists. No, no. We are. Uh, listen, we're we're, we're truth, we're truth we're tellers against. here. You know. Yes. And uh, we Billy don't care. Jean was his lover. Damn it. We don't care what the establishment has to say. We believe that child rape is bad. Mm-hmm. Yes. Bold stands. Yeah, we don't Bold care who stands. silences us. Yeah, and we we had the audacity to make a comment like that, and then it was over. Uh, I think, yeah. But anyway, kill me a thought. Oh yeah, (laughs) was this idea that I think Nick had right? They're they're all my ideas. Yeah, they're all my ideas. Yeah. Well, this was in the you know in the the the, our adolescence really as a podcast. Uh, We were we were experimenting. We were, you know, yeah, seeing other people, seeing guys, seeing girls. You Mm. know, it was just it was. Taking all sorts of drugs. It was a wild time in the wild, wild west of the show. You pretty little liar. (laughs) Those are back in the day when we allowed women on this podcast. We we used to play games, Joe, as a podcast episode. We used to play games. We tried tried everything. We tried Uh, everything. um, But yeah, but so Nick had this idea. Let's take the five most disturbing movies ever made. And let's think of. Yeah. Yes. And let's watch them all in one night. And let's be started at 9 p.m. Oh, I think even later. Maybe. Yeah. Because the idea. Yeah. The idea was that we would begin when we were already tired. And as the sun rose, we would finish this podcast and you would and we would record along the way after every movie. We would discuss it Um, like 15 minutes or something. Right. And you can just sort of track our descent into madness i was gonna say your decline your mental decline sure because because that's the thing about the episode i've listened to the whole thing and it's not like i mean this happens occasionally on the show where sometimes 
Um, it's not so much like our conversation that's interesting, but it's what the movie does to us that's fun to listen to. So that's a great example of like you can really, really feel you guys just like losing your souls and your humanity just starts to wither away. And by the end of it, we just don't know who you are. And yeah. I, I, <laughs> it, it's, it's quite exciting, actually. <laughs> I, I can truly definitely tell you that the moment we finished, there was this like really just feeling of release and mm. i was like oh thank god and then we looked out the window and the sun was coming up and it just like <laughs> it was just salt in the wound it was 5 a.m 5 30 a.m when we finished and then <laughs> and didn't zach have to work like an eight hour shift right oh, afterwards? Yeah. Yes, oh yes. my god uh. i didn't sleep that day because i had shit to do so like i was awake we were all awake for like 48 hours straight it was brutal can i can i guess what the movies were Sure. Sure. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, Serbian film. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the audition. No. 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 Mm. Oh, that uh, might be uh, a good one for part two, you, though, if, Adam. I would say if you can get like three Not of them, that's pretty good. Trying to think, um, human. But that seems above no. nope. not not gross enough. There was um, one that was kind of a cheat. I'll tell you it right now. It, was, it didn't mm-hmm. really qualify. It was a Clockwork Orange. Oh, but we yeah. but we started with that, I believe, right? It, it, yeah, it was it was kind of our yeah, it was, it was our palate cleanser. So palate yeah. cleanser, sure. <laughs> <laughs> but you think about uh, it next to the other films, and it's just like, what were you like? Why did you choose that one? Yeah. <laughs> if yeah. it was your if it was your um, adolescence, then Midsummer wouldn't be on there because that was re- too recent. We yeah, it, it the year would have been two thousand fifteen. Fifteen, yeah. Uh. Funny games? No, was that one? No, was but that was close. we did do that later. Close, we yeah. did that movie later. I yeah, that's a good movie. The only other one that comes up is the um, the Green Inferno. Oh, that movie sucks. <laughs> that's such a piece of shit. Who did the uh, Green Inferno? Eli Roth. Eli Roth. <laughs> I'll throw but, out uh, some directors. Maybe this will help. Again, though, Joe mentioning the green inferno that's close to one of the movies they did very close oh cannibal holocaust did you guys do that one no no nope. shit there no, I, I i keep mentioning that we need to do the okay so i'm wrong about that no we haven't done cannibal holocaust yet but i i that, I have that was going to be on part two yes exactly exactly yeah uh gasper no was one of the directors gasper noe gasper 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 no way no way no way yeah i the film is irreversible I'm, okay okay yeah uh, Lars von Trier's Antichrist was also one of the. Oh, uh, Jesus, yeah, okay. A uh, lot of naked Willem Dafoe in that movie. Yeah, a lot of literal ball busting movie. Uh, uh, yes, uh, the ejaculation of bodily fluids other than semen featured prominently in that movie. Uh, and uh, the the French horror film Martyrs. I don't know if you've ever heard of Martyrs. Uh, flaying galore, mm. lots of skin removed from flesh. Just the one scene. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I've seen all of them. <laughs> I, I feel I feel defeated just hearing that list. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For years I think, after that, every time I, I saw Reversible was the hardest. That was yeah. Tough. That's mm-hmm. a that was the hardest by far. Yeah, Serbian film is one of those movies where you know obviously like it's just provocation like it's just showing you the most horrific stuff but there's an element of like satire and comedy to it that sort of makes you feel like oh this is not actually happening whereas the other movies 
are aimed to like evoke a very specific reaction out of you and uh you know martyrs certainly was in terms of like the body horror of it uh mm-hmm. antichrist was like really unsettling as an experience but that you know is made by Lars von trier who's like a competent filmmaker um and yeah irrever- irreversible is i mean it's, it's just it's hard we, pure we actually, viscera the entire time we technically did not succeed uh, at Irreversible, we had to fast forward. Oh yeah, we through, did through mm-hmm. through the mm-hmm. scene. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there's a there's a twelve I, are minute. Are you familiar with scene. that movie? Yeah, Joe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, yeah. Brutal. It is just twelve minutes, and it's just yep. uncut. It it's just it's just hard to watch. It is a movie that was designed from the ground up to make the audience throw up. That was Gaspar Noe's conceit making it. He was going to make it this sensory experience that made the audience nauseous, mm-hmm. both with the way it shot, the structure of the story, and the sound design particularly. Oh my goodness, the sound design in that movie. Mm-hmm. It's bad. Yeah. There, I think there's only one movie I have seen since for this podcast that, for me at least, would have fit, which is Mother. Okay. Yeah. That movie it hits me just the wrong way. I, that's fair. Okay. I see. What and I'm mean. afraid what? Midsummer is going to do the same thing if we ever do that. But oh maybe Midsummer would be a good option. I love that's, Midsummer. I love. It's a great Midsummer. movie, but it, it's a great movie, but it fucks you up. It does. Yeah. It does. <laughs> Adam um, and I famously saw that together, and then sat in the parking lot afterwards for about an hour as I yelled at him and <laughs> ate ice cream. Yeah, we went and got ice cream afterwards, and I just started yelling. And Adam, Adam put it so perfectly because we're sitting there like that. That's not a thing that should exist. You know, that shouldn't like be in cinemas for people to buy a ticket to. Yeah. And Adam goes, he points to the movie theater. There's a monster in there. That that was like the perfect distillation. He goes, there's a monster in there. And it's it's that movie. Yeah. Yep. That the one you talking about irreversible just reminded me there was a movie I think in 1992 called Man Bites or yeah Man Bites Dog. Love that movie. Love that movie. That's a oh, great movie, but it's one of those visceral ones where you're just sitting through it and you get beat up by it. It's just this very it's okay because it's weird because of its stance on like the found footage genre. It's both funny and then the second you laugh you feel horrible about it it's it's not fun it's like and again there's such a plainness to it sometimes like when like one of the killer the guys kill somebody it's just so real and 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 uncaring yeah that's a tough one and i i normally hate that shit where they're like actually viewer you're the problem but Mm. they do it in a way that's very subtle and nice in this um So anyway, we're talking about better movies than the one we had to watch for this anyway. so Yes, that's very true. <laughs> very, very true. Yeah, so maybe Kill Me a Thon Part 2 coming in April. You never know. I have a good list for you guys, by the way, to consider. Yeah. You should have it coincide with my birthday because that would just be beautiful. <laughs> that's your present? Your birthday? Uh, April, April 20th. Yes, that would be my present. April 29th is my birthday. Okay, okay. maybe we can make that work. Right. I would love to see you all being disturbed. Yeah, uh, you got, it's gonna right. be hard for me though because I'm so like, yeah, I'm just so used to those movies. It's like, yeah, yeah. Adam watches those movies like to wake up in the morning with his breakfast. <laughs> just... Adam's <laughs> gonna be hard for Adam because he's already dead inside and he That's has true. no regard for anyone. It's his version Last... of the Today Show. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> well, frankly, I think Midsummer was the last movie to like properly like fuck me up. I think. 
Aside, well, I guess NitRam kind of messed me up, but it's that's a little bit different. You know, it's not quite the same level of just visceral. The Emoji Movie? How about the Emoji Movie? Yeah, again, but but again, different, n- different. That I, I, I'll give I'll give the Emoji Movie this. It's the only movie in a while that made me start beating the shit out of myself. <laughs> made me start beating the shit out of myself. <sighs> <laughs> we got to find more movies like that. Is really the moral of the story. Uh, All right, let's get to the subject at hand. DeFeo, you have teased this movie for this podcast for quite some time now. It's a movie that often comes up in conversation. I think the first time we discussed it was uh, on the Nothing But Trouble episode where you compared the posters of both films, um, uh, that one being Nothing But Trouble, this one being Bonfire of the Vanities, Directed by Brian De Palma. It is one of those classic uh, big studio disasters that's uh, often discussed as a part of Hollywood lore. There there was an entire book written about the behind the scenes fiasco of this movie. Um, it, it is a movie that at the time was not defended by critics nor audiences. And it's one of the rare movies to this day, 30 years later, that has yet to be reclaimed by either critics or audiences. And that's a rare one because mm. every once in a while you'll get a stray opinion, um, you know, about a, a movie like Jennifer's Body or, uh, you know, uh, what, what's another one that's like been reclaimed? I mean, obviously, The Big Lebowski is one of the, the more prominent ones, but I think uh, not, not a good movie in my opinion, but I've seen that I've seen it. I've seen some of the circles is um, uh, Freddie Got Fingered. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So uh, there are plenty of movies that, at the very least, have a small contingent yeah. that defends them. Exactly. And it's usually it's usually to me it's usually to like movies that are centered around some kind of events. So like Hocus Pocus has been reclaimed mm. in the last few years. When that movie came out, it was a huge bomb, mm-hmm. and and no one liked it. Mm-hmm. Um, Disney, in fact, was so. I remember they released it in the summer. They were like, "This Halloween movie won't even do well in Halloween." Yeah. <laughs> oh no is that is that all true because i remember being a kid and always loving that movie sure uh, i think no, it's- it, it let me see what it was but I, I remember it coming out and it was supposed to be a big deal because of, yeah focus focus was released july 16th 1993 um it was a bomb mm-hmm. um and what was the box office? Can you see the box office? Uh, yeah, it was on a budget of $28 million, it made 45.4, so not great. Oh, not bad, though. But not bad. Um, oh, wait. It, it possibly lost $16.5 million during its theatrical run. Okay. Oh, God. Okay. I yeah, think the, um, this must be the, the 45.4 must be the updated when they did the re-release. And oh, everything. sure, 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 sure. Yeah. So... It still gets yeah. re-releases. Like you still will like go to an AMC during October and see it like, you know, for and five dollars. There's, there's a sequel coming out. Oh no. See, yeah, that's yeah, a, yeah. That's a weird one for me because it, it in in my lifetime I've never thought of it as a movie that wasn't beloved. Mm. But at the same time, I don't care for the movie at all. <laughs> so I'm one of those people that's like, eh, no. Yeah. Well it's it's I, one of those like late eighties, early nineties campy the kids films yeah, that yeah. if it hits at the right time and enough kids see it um yeah there there can sort of be I th- a I think I think Disney Plus has sort of brought back a little bit of a revival of it for sure 
Well, yeah. and, and the whole fact that we have a 24 hour cable cycle that needs to be fed. So I don't know, like ABC Freeform, whatever it is now, ABC Family, they play that stuff 24 seven. But even that, though, is kind of a different animal compared to something like Bonfire of the, of the Vanities, you know, like yeah. that. That's a movie that, you know, it's defenders. I, and I don't want to characterize or cast dispersions, but are generally uh, not like cinephiles, you know, like it's not like there's like, oh, you know, a, a group of like film scholars that are reclaiming Hocus Pocus, well, you know, like. Oh, that, yeah, that's, I also don't you know. think anybody who is like reclaiming Hocus Pocus even claims it's a good movie. Sure. It's just yeah, traditional it, yeah, standards. Yeah. Fun movie for sure. I it's guess. something right. that they liked and it's fueled by nostalgia and like mm-hmm. that, you know, that's its own animal with Bonfire of the, of the Vanities. Like that's a, you know, piece of original intellectual property based on a beloved novel um, about like adult ideas directed by one of the great auteurs of the 1970s and has a massive cast and, you know, like that is a movie strictly aimed at adults. And at the very least, what a movie like that is supposed to do is cause a bunch of like smart people living in the Upper West Side to go, hmm, it's some interesting ideas, you know, <laughs> but there is none of that. There are there is nobody that even comes close to defending this movie. Uh, and I I guess watching it, I, I understand. I But. I don't know. I feel like the myth around this movie has become much bigger than the movie itself. And all of the discourse that I've seen around it, I, I did not get a chance to read The Devil's Candy, the the novel that details the behind the scenes here. But I did listen to the Turner Classic Movies podcast, essentially about the writing of the book, The Devil's Candy. And the focus of that podcast, for the most part, is here's all the stuff that happened behind the scenes that was so chaotic. Like, we... Almost uh, hired Alan Arkin to play the judge, and then we had to fire him, but still pay his salary. And you know, Melanie Griffith got a boob job halfway through the production. Like all of these like tabloidy, <laughs> scandalous things, but there wasn't a lot of like discussion of this is why the movie doesn't work mm, on right. a cinematic level. <laughs> sure, sure. And I guess that's what I want to talk about today. Like, why do you guys think this movie is such a colossal failure cinematically, not just behind the scenes. We can talk about the behind the scenes later, I guess. It's a weird one, though. It's it's because this falls kind of squarely into the cats uh, category for me personally, hmm. because it's 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 not a movie because cats is is this going to sound really controversial, but hear me out. I I don't watch a movie like cats and describe it as a train wreck. It's a horrible movie, but like Suicide Squad is a train wreck. Whereas like Cats is just like a poorly conceived thing from the get go where the direction from the start was just wrong. And there's just this uncanniness to the all the decisions going on at once. It's just like everyone is on their worst behavior and they don't know they're on their worst behavior. And perhaps maybe that's the key here, I guess, because I watched the film and I'm like, OK, yeah, it's like finely edited and shot and directed everything is like on a craftsmanship level is not like the worst thing i've ever seen by a significant margin there's some stuff that's legitimately good that opening shot even though it's showy as all hell is not poorly done at all No, it's excellent yeah the track the 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 steady cam shot yeah yeah it's great that's one that's one of the things that people keep on going back to in this movie when they look at it and they say that was amazing but it wasn't necessarily the director who did it it was the cinematographer 
It, it was uh, the same steady cam operator that worked on the Copacabana shot in Goodfellas. And you can tell. Right. You can right. tell. It. That was my first but, thought. It's like, oh, Copacabana. It's, okay. it's also inconsequential to the film. Right. <laughs> uh, way, here's, here's the problem with the movie is it just fucking sucks. Yes. <laughs> I mean, yes, I, it just like, I know that sounds like, oh, no shit, but like. There, it's it. There, it's a nothing movie. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I'm talking about, though. It's just like it's 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 kind of hard to articulate. This is why, like, I think the question that Nico posed, where it's like, why does it cinematically not work? And it's like, well, you know, it's it's hard to describe. But there's just something well, about let's it. The title. I, let's I, start I, with the title. Let's start with the title. No, no, but let's start there. Let's well, you start can start there. with a book for that one, though. Is the thing. Now, here's the let's, thing. I I I don't know, Joe. Have you read the book? Yeah. Okay, see, I've never read the book. I don't know a thing about the book. Yeah. I don't care about the book in this conversation personally. I could just tell you that as a movie, it, it's it's terrible. Yeah, and see, the thing was, there's, and Nico, I'll contradict you a little bit. It's not a beloved book. It's become a beloved book. When it first came out, the reason people read it was because they wanted to see if they were in it. Tom Wolfe was such a bitch when he wrote this. Huh. Um, he skewered everybody in the book. Right. And so uh, the book has become a classic in the sense that it's a time capsule mm. of that period in New York um, and the excess of, the, of that generation and that, that decade. And uh, it was just completely ravaging everyone that it touched. Okay. Um, and I think that's the failing of the movie is that in a book, you can have people you don't like because you walk away and you, you're creating the character in your head mm. in the movie. And this was Warner brothers own admission. When they made the movie, they needed to have someone likable in this. And you, there is no one likable in this story no. from start to finish. It's, it's not like it's impossible to have bad characters doing horrible things while still being likable though. Like we've seen it done in television with shows like Breaking Bad. Like it is absolutely possible. So it is a failing on somebody at some level. It it's not impossible, but I think for the time period it wasn't. I don't think that it was, was unheard kind of unheard of at the time. Right. Certainly. I don't think people were making those kind of movies back then. Uh, yeah, no one, I agree. No one wanted an anti-hero. Sure. It, maybe the medium was wrong. I I know um, there for a while there, Chuck Lorre was working on a Amazon yeah. miniseries. I heard about of that the too, book, yeah. and I think that they uh, I think wisely <laughs> nipped that in the bud. Um, Is, but yeah, I that mean, that I think that might have been a better medium to do this because obviously there's a lot of characters. So in a miniseries version, you might devote an episode to each individual character. Like you would have a DA episode, you would have a judge episode, you would have a you know an episode of the origin story behind the kid that was run over, right? Like you would have all of this stuff, and maybe you could explicate that a little more. Um, but it'd be yeah. kind of cool actually to do an episode from every person's perspective, right? Essentially, but I do just- think you're right in the sense that uh, this is a movie with. Uh, ideas that were probably 10 years too early in the old Hollywood system of making things with a lot of big movie stars and a big director. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, like this was a movie that cost a lot of money. I mean, this was a major production of yep. a major novel. Like you can say that the, okay, maybe the, uh, the, uh, the, the book was not beloved, but it sold a lot of copies. It was a big like zeitgeisty thing. Sure. 
Um, now, was it zeitgeisty outside of New York City for anyone like in the Midwest or anyone that didn't understand the dynamics of that time and the, that particular social strata? I don't know. Um, but it was, you know, it was headlight grabby enough, you know, for the early 90s. Well, right. in, in, interestingly, I feel like the message of this movie is way more prevalent today. And what it has to say is like actually a very, I, I think, uh, brave thing to say today but i also think it's the an unpopular opinion to say today yeah so oh, i don't I think the mean. movie i don't think the movie would be reclaimed because I, I don't think people would like what it has to say about society and the way things are going right so, now so what do you think Perhaps. about the about the uh the commentary of tom wolf's original novel because i can't help but think some of it was lost in the the making of the movie too oh everything was lost in, in the making of the movie. everything yeah um, <laughs> so the to, just to put it in perspective, Nico said it was an expensive movie. Yeah. At the time, it was a $45 million movie to make. So I looked up the equivalence. It's about $100 million. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So for a shot, for a movie with no big special effects <laughs> yeah. and three, you know, three big stars, that's that, back then it's a ton of movie, yeah. a ton of money. Yeah. Um, yeah. So for, I think for, the reference, for reference, Dune is 165 million dollars. So right. today, yeah. Oh my 70, god, seventy percent <laughs> oh of Dune's budget was put in this movie. Oh Jesus! Uh, I think the the commentary that was lost was the fragile structures that underlie uh, how a city works and how a government works and how you know the 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 class struggle is omnipresent in that stuff, which I know is is all standard. But uh, again, especially in a place like New York, where you have the at that time, um, you're still dealing with the fallout of the economic bust of the 70s. Um, you know, that famous daily news cover from 1977, I think it was um, Ford to City dropped dead. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the Bronx was uh, where part of this takes place. The Bronx was um, decimated because they built highway that split the Bronx in half. They built a, a, to ease traffic in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Um, they they uh, pushed people out. Um, building owners set their buildings on fire to get insurance money. Um, and uh, it just decimated a, a population of people that were vulnerable. Mm. And uh, that's where the race comes into it because most people living in the Bronx at the time were black and brown people. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were um, literally bisected so that white people could have a lot easier time driving around Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And and using highways to racially segregate ha- is actually a very prevalent thing around this time. It was yeah. happened in Hartford, Connecticut. Mm. Yep. It um, happened here in Cincinnati. It's hmm. uh, and I'm sure it's happened in many cities across the country, so. Yeah, and you know, I think there was a real underpinning of the of that class gap mm-hmm. and the uh that was completely lost and then the idea of um uh hypocrisy um in in the social structure um plus you're also looking at people from a specific time in new york um at koch al sharpton um oh the al sharpton comparisons are (laughs) i mean so obvious so ridiculously Um, obvious yeah and, and and so you know you have all that again it's specific to the book and and with a book at least you get kind of like the wink wink it's if you're if you know it's who's supposed to be then it's you know who's supposed to be and if you don't you can make that up in your head 
Mm. Um, but the motivation for folks was very clear in the book as opposed to the movie. The movie just assumes you understand where these people are coming from. Yeah. Or it's so heavy handed that it like loses its like like when you see the politician be like, oh, we got to arrest all the white people. Like it, you know, it, right. it just it loses its it, it, it feels so silly. I guess it's not I very- don't know. It's not very cinematic. I mean, the funny thing about like those scenes that you're talking about too, Nick, with the politician is like that's a that F. Murray Abraham is one of the few performances that I actually like in the movie. Um, but that entire scene is is nothing but what you just explained. It's, where it's just like, exposition. Here's, it's just here's tell, why, don't yeah. show, and it's yeah. Bad. Here's why the politicians are evil. It's right. yeah, okay, right. I get it. Yeah, so. yeah, and and yeah. there were a lot of characters that they don't get into. You're 100 percent right about that, Joe. Yeah. They they really don't have time. Right, right. And and that was the thing about the book. The book had such a broad sweeping uh, view of every single type of social uh, group in New York. Um, and, and I'm not, I just want to clarify too, I'm not one of those folks who looks at a movie and looks at a book and is like, oh, this sucks because it wasn't exactly like the book, you know, or <laughs> right, yeah. I understand they're two different mediums. There's things that come in and, and usually they're two separate entities. And if something is too slavish to the book, you get Harry Potter, the first two Harry Potter movies, which were garbage. Thank and you. Then, <laughs> here, here. Here, here. Incorrect, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> you also get Game of Thrones season one, which is beautiful. Sure. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, but also that's a different scale. I mean, that's, it's true. you're allowed to, to, to stretch that out. Um, what about Silence of the Lambs? <laughs> it's pretty slavish to the book. You think so? Yeah, <laughs> but it's a great movie. Yeah. See, and it's funny you bring that up because I think of when I went back to this movie, I thought of Hannibal. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh, God. I, I thought funny. of Silence of the Lambs for some reason at points really? in this movie. Interesting. Yeah, I really did. I don't know why. <laughs> I, I thought of it because there's to me, Hannibal was a big like kind of a big fuck you. Like, OK, go ahead go ahead and try to film this book. Like, right. Well, that's why, that's why Demi and, uh, and Ted, uh, Tally dropped out of that one. Cause they, they, you get to the ending with, uh, Hannibal Lecter and, uh, and Clarice going on like sexcapades and like Buenos Aires and stuff like that. And they live happily right. ever after. Right. It's like what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's go I, ahead. Thought that, I thought that about Bonfire of the Vanities. Like it's just Tom Wolf writes these dense, dense books. And when they're not journalistic, like, the right stuff, which is a great movie, was also a great journalistic book. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't a novel. He writes these dense reporter-like books when he does write a novel that sometimes work, sometimes don't. Wasn't um, this was his first novel, correct? His yeah. fictional first fictional novel. Oh I mean, it, that clearly shows. Um, you know, one of the comparisons that was made in the Turner Classic Movies podcast was uh, to Brett Easton Ellis's American Psycho. And I, I think they're very similar. I mean, because they're about the sort of class structure in New York and they're heavily satirical, but there's also such a directness and obviousness to the social commentary that just doesn't really translate to the screen. And that's because, yeah, Tom Wolfe is this brilliant journalist. I mean, the, the journalism that he did in the 60s and 70s was groundbreaking, but I mean, you wouldn't say like, oh, these would make great movies. I mean, they're they are meant to be sort of very obvious pieces of satire for the page um 
I think and one the, translates very well to the screen, but part of that is because of the way it's using its central character. Yeah. That is just inherently more compelling and cinematic to me. So it goes for it in the way that this one doesn't. So, so especially so, when you're making this in, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say the old Hollywood system, but at least like the early nineties before like the independent movement had really, you know, sunk its teeth into Hollywood and before television became the medium that it is now. Like, yeah, it's hard to see how Tom Hanks can fit into something that, that is meant to be published as a weekly installment in Rolling Stone or whatever mm-hmm. it was. This was originally in Rolling Stone, right? Yeah, he he went down the Dickensian path and that sure. only added to that weird like class structure thing. Yeah. Tom Wolf is so weird because he's such he wants to be like this weird southern dandy. Yeah. Um and he I think he was born in just the wrong time. He was born like in in late 40s of post-war Virginia. Uh-huh. Um and you know famous for wearing that white suit um because he thought it was gentlemanly to do and that's the other thing is that he brings inherent stuff from the south um and i don't want to you know not getting into like a he's something he's racist per se but he has preconceived race notions that play out in the book Mm. that are short shorthand in the movie i certainly (laughs) felt that way when they get to the bronx scene oh my god i mean it is it's one of the most defensive things you'll ever see and it it, obviously it's with this shade of like this is supposed to be satire and you're supposed to be seeing this the way that tom hanks is seeing this um and melanie griffith is seeing it but i mean it just comes across i think the mayor of the bronx or i guess the president of the bronx at the time wanted there to be a disclaimer at the end of the movie saying the depiction of the bronx here is not actually how it is uh, I mean, Not it is close. it is a no, war zone. I mean, it, it, it was, it's it like, was like the Gaza apocalypse strip. over there. I mean, it was it's, yeah, it's, yeah. It's so you know what it you know what it looked like. It literally looked like sets from Escape from New York, and I'm like, yes. Yes. Yeah, it, yes. did. No. it did. The music even sounded like it. I was like, what the fuck's going on? <laughs> everywhere. I mean, yeah. literally everywhere on the street there is. No, garbage. there's literally just a guy breaking a car yeah. like, windshield with a bat. Yeah. Yeah. One of the behind the scenes things was that the residents of the Bronx, when they were filming up there, started pelting the, the crew and cast with light bulbs and, and like, eggs. Fruit and eggs. Yeah. 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 Good. Good. Um, it's funny that you mentioned the, 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 uh, the music because immediately when the music switches to the Bronx music, like, there was so much about this movie that was stereotypical in the vein of satire mm-hmm. that it just did not work. Like when they get into the Bronx, all of a sudden you get that low slung blues electric guitar and like, right, 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 right. you know, yeah, the like, like, yeah. oh, and you pull up into a street corner where people are just lighting things on fire for no and, reason and, and with blocking, music, blocking right. the street. Yeah. Blocking the street. And like right. the guy, the guy who threw the girl on the hood of the car and he goes, get a job. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, yeah. <sighs> I, uh, the, the music cues in this, which is a whole other thing, I think, discussion to have is the music cues were so stereotypical. And I don't know if it was just the time or what, but they are both tasteless and tone deaf. Was I was going to say this movie them. feels yeah tone deaf because it's not getting into anything enough no. to kind of defend right. itself no 
It doesn't feel like a satire when you watch it. It feels just like a very, it feels just like a very low level, surface level yeah, view. Yeah, because the of script is so stupid. Issues. I mean, it's because yes. it's a stupid script. So well, it's like spend- you can pull this off if you, yeah, if you, if you can bring it together at the end. Like if you can somehow right. conclude this thing with something that requires two brain cells rubbing together. Not that fucking Morgan Freeman speech at the end, which is maybe the worst example of like a black savior closing monologue I've ever seen in a movie ever. And I've seen a lot of bad shit like that. That is one of the worst closing monologues I've ever seen in a movie. Yep. Yeah. You know? Yeah. (laughs) I I didn't even fully agree with what he was saying too. There are aspects I was like, you could really pick that apart about about his notion of like justice in the law, and be like, yeah, but can't laws be pretty unjust to what you're talking about? Like I don't know, justice is the law. Be decent people and go home. And and the law is decency. Decent. (laughs) And the law only prevailed because someone was indecent and told a lie. Right. Right. Yeah. Like, what's the message we're taking? Exactly. Bruce Willis also like his. His character being in this movie hurt the movie, not helped it, unfortunately. Not Bruce Willis himself, but the character. It wasted too much screen time on something that got in the way of everything else. Guys, amongst the most pointless characters I've seen in a movie in a very, very long time. Useless. Useless. Absolutely pointless. Useless. Also, by far, the most interesting character in the movie at the same time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wanted the entire movie to be about that guy. Fuck the rest of the plot. I, Just show me this corrupt journalist. And that's I it. would I would have wanted that had he not been played by Bruce Willis. Um, Bruce Willis guys, sucks in this. Bruce Willis <laughs> is unfathomably bad in this movie. Yeah. In a way, I, I don't mean, know if I've ever seen him be bad before. He doesn't before. get a chance to even do anything interesting. Oh, it, but it's like every second he's on screen, the decision is incorrect. And it's not, and you're right. He's not even on screen for that long. But miraculously, he leaves no, this incredible impression of just bullshit. He's, he's <laughs> on screen just long enough to waste enough time to make the movie worse. <laughs> yes. One of one of my favorite parts to that is the very beginning when he's his voiceover starts. Yeah. Oh, I'm my like, God. Kill me. I'm like when I when he started that in the back of my head, I'm going, oh, that's Bruce Willis acting. Yep. <laughs> you could hear him acting. He's doing Look Who's Talking. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, because at least Look Who's Talking was entertaining. That's true. Yeah. It's, I yeah. cannot stand, I know this was popular at the time, but I cannot stand the narrator film. Like, I hate it. Just never narrate your films. Well, it's a lazy, never. it's a lazy, it's a lazy point when it's someone who's adapting a book is like, oh, it's a book. So there has to be a narrator. So let me. Put this over, you know. Well, let me tell you instead of Does showing. Does he not you, narrate just, the book? This character? He he's a main driving force in the book. Uh-huh. Um, I'm trying to remember if it's if he's it's his narration who drives it, but but like um, when they made the Great Gatsby film, they don't have fucking Nick narrating right. the film the whole time, do they? No. I don't think they do because they're smart and they made a good choice. <laughs> yeah, I think this is just a lazy choice. Like even if, even if Peter Fallow was narrating the book. Like, it's just a lazy choice to go back and be like, okay, we're going to have him do it here. In okay. film, the camera is the narrator. Yep. And let the camera do its and, job. And the sad thing is in the book, he's, he, again, they tried to make him likable and he's not. Um, he's the he's the reason everything happens to Sherman McCoy and, and mm-hmm. 
he there's no redemption there's no you know he's I, he's a, he's a drunk he's but a in drunk. the book Watch though him. it's it's played as like this man has taken advantage of this situation in order to promote his career and that's kind of the angle that they take here but also he's on this like noble quest to to save Sherman McCoy through a lot of it so you have like this you know this very unclear character motivation throughout I mean that I think that is the larger problem with the movie is that everyone uh, like is so one dimensional that they can't be likable but the movie's also not biting enough where any of them are unlikable so they're all they all sort of exist in this weird middle ground where yeah. everyone's like kind of just annoying and that's the worst <laughs> thing you can say about any character in any movie is that they're just annoying. Well, um, even Tom Hanks, I couldn't stand him. Okay, so part of this, though, too, is because of the casting. And this is what I want to talk yeah. about here. I am not sure anyone in this movie is well cast. I'm not no. sure there's a single person. And that is, like, the most obvious criticism you can make of, uh, of the movie, but it's also the most true. Um, Hanks. This is obviously after Splash. It's after Big. He has played nothing but like charming comedic leads for the yep. first 10 years of his career. And this is the first sort of zag that he takes before he goes on the Oscar run of like Philadelphia, Forrest Gump, etc. Um, there is an argument to be made for like casting Woody Harrelson and Natural Born Killers where it's like we're going to cast someone to do specifically the opposite of what they normally do. And we're going to play with your expectations of you know what they're supposed to be we're going to cast america's dad as a serial killer whatever here though they don't do that they cast tom hanks to be like god this movie's kind of a bummer let's put tom hanks in there to liven things up yeah, and do his be. tom hanks thing and he's doing his tom hanks thing after committing vehicular manslaughter you know like he yeah. does his tom hanks thing after having and cheating an affair out with his wife yeah, it's, right and being yeah. a horrible wall street douchebag like right. i mean it is baffling how bad this casting is it's bad well, that, that is interesting too because you know like you just said you bring in tom hanks because he's just a likable dude but it's a little disingenuous because they're not being honest about who this character actually is by doing that right. and man yeah that's that's a great point because I, I i wanted nothing more than to see tom hanks go under frankly yes. i don't care yeah right when have you but ever the, thought that about tom hanks exactly exactly yeah thank yeah. you the, well, when he did, uh, what was that, Cloud Atlas? I wanted to see him go under. Yeah, um, I could have seen him go under. Uh, do you not like, I love do you not like Cloud Atlas? Nick and do you not I like Cloud Atlas? Movie. Don't you I'm dare. Not a fan. I'm not oh, a fan. my God. You are uh, just not smart don't enough. Don't you dare. I don't, you are just, I don't, your brain I don't is hate. just too small to appreciate that Oh, film. my God. Shut up. Did you, did you just <laughs> say I'm not smart enough? <laughs> That's the yes. worst fucking shit. <laughs> sir, sir, I read Tom Wolf, sir. I don't know. <laughs> Oh, oh, I read Tom Wolf. I read Bob uh, Mowing the Flack Catchers. Okay, but, but, I, I will say this, but yeah, Joe, I don't, I don't hate Cloud Atlas, but like, yeah, I get it, I get it. <laughs> but that's the thing about that's the thing about the characters. The character in the book, and they make a point in the movie, and you hear this repeatedly. He's a master of the universe. Mm. That was a specific kind of person, and that was the embodiment of, you know, Patrick Bateman in American Psycho. If we're doing yeah. comparisons, mm -hmm. you know, the good-looking, ruthless cunning uh but still somehow extremely dumb guy uh who could finagle a deal and tom hanks every time i watched him in this movie all i could think about is the tom hanks from bachelor party like yes like doofing around and trying to be the nice guy you know kind of a dick but just a nice like i'm gonna have a beer with that guy after we 
get the six hundred million dollar bond thing in place. Sure, he can't yeah. help himself. He's Tom yeah. Hanks. Yeah, I mean, he literally can't help himself. That was another theme of the podcast and of the book. It, it, Bruce Willis, a complete asshole on the set of this movie, only talked <sighs> about like how much the tabloids love him. Like, I think it, there there was a right. point where he he told the journalist. Uh, uh, and I'm blanking on her name. I apologize. Julia, Julia Salomon. Julia, yeah, Julia Salomon. Uh, like, you know, a study came out recently and like a magazine sales will like quadruple if they put my face on the cover or something like that. And he was like presenting it as a scientific study. Like it just total asshole on the set of the movie. Melanie Griffith was OK, but like really aloof and kind of nuts and annoying the entire time. Uh, you liked you thought she was OK. In no, the movie? I'm, ta- I'm talking about the Julie Salomon uh Right, the, the her account. Okay. This oh, is behind she the was scenes. talking about behind the scenes of, oh, okay, of the okay, movie. Okay, okay. Right, yeah, I see. Tom Hanks though would like play cribbage with the other members of the shoot. <laughs> like he wouldn't sit in his trailer. He would just like play cards all day and like was disgustingly likable. Like, yeah. to, like it, you, you've never heard a bad word about Tom Hanks for a reason. Sure. And like he can't help himself. That persona translates. It's the mm-hmm. exact same thing on screen. He can't help, which is why he's played Forrest Gump and cast away and whatever his yeah. entire career. He can't help it. Has he ever Plus successfully he's... done anything to break away from that? Where he's like, you know, maybe like compelling, but not necessarily lovable. That's a good question. I, I guess he did that movie, The Circle with Emma Watson. I mean, a couple years ago, I didn't see that movie, but he's the villain. Are you basically asking, has he ever played a villain? Like, well, not even necessarily a villain, but like where he's, you know, he's, he's usually the protagonist, but like where he's played a, like a difficult person. I mean, I, I, I like him in Saving Private Ryan. I've always felt like he plays kind of a prick in that though. Uh, Well enough though. Uh, Charlie Wilson's war. Oh, good. Yeah. Okay. Good. I mean, he's like the antagonist, but still the good guy in like, catch me if you can. Yeah. yeah, no, he's like, I love him in that But, but like, he's That's the good problem. guy still, and you yeah, love him. Yeah, like, exactly. I, again, they're all variations on the bachelor party guy. Like, sure. he's a dick. He's a loser and he's a dick, but you can't help but like him. Yeah. What and about they, yeah, Road to sh- Perdition, though? Maybe. <laughs> he was, what are you talking about? He's very likable in that. He's extremely likable in that movie. But he's like killing people with Tommy guns. I don't know. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. That, that was justified. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> That's a very low threshold for being disliked. Yeah, Did I you know. Pull I someone know. with a Tommy gun. I don't like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, he just doesn't have that edge. He doesn't have the edge that you need in this role. And um, yeah, no. which is Willis, fine. He's Jimmy right. Stewart. That's fine. But mm-hmm. just Bruce, don't cast him in this movie. Bruce Willis. It was interesting to me that it was this was his first big movie after Die Hard. Yes, yes. And even Die Hard was a stretch for him because he was the moonlighting actor. He was the yep. funny guy from that and the Bartles and James commercials. Um, he had a, a stupid blues album where he thought he could play harmonica. Mm. But interesting um, thing about Die Hard, though, is that he was cast for that very reason where it's like, no, you don't play Arnold Schwarzenegger. Well, yeah, you are yeah, exactly. just the normal guy. And we it's, like that in this type of action. And we movie need that someone that can for. sell the jokes, too. But yes. we, see that, right. we see that this happens in Hollywood where you get cast to be the opposite and then you end up falling into that role a lot. Yeah. Like that happened with Ryan Gosling. They cast him initially in the notebook because they thought he was ugly. <laughs> and now he's considered and now he's considered one of the most handsome men in Hollywood, right? Yeah. That's a real fact. I mean <laughs> And if you look at Die Hard, Die Hard is technically a satire. Die Hard yeah. is you know, so yes, it makes it makes some sense and because everybody was in on the joke, it worked. 
But then now Bruce Willis is considered an action star. Right. And then for him <laughs> right. to go and for him and his ego to go from that to Bonfire of the Man, because he made he figures I'm the one who made Die Hard. It was all me. Yeah. Right. And so now he's like, oh, they're very lucky to have me here. And it it came across in this movie and every fucking scene he's in. I'm like, look at him acting. He's really going for the acting here. Yeah, it's um, terrible. When he was being backlit, that was one of my favorite little behind the scenes things was he insisted on being backlit because of his bald spot. Oh my um, God. <laughs> yeah. God, you know, Bruce Real- Willis is a real, he's a real son of a bitch. Is he <laughs> still, is he still an asshole or did he just have like a phase oh, yeah. where he was, he's awful to work with? Yeah. 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 That's a, that's a real good. shame because he does make good movies, but. Well, um, not anymore. Well, yeah, yeah. He made, he, and, and, we'll, and he, I'm sorry, go ahead. He, he wanted to be, he wanted to be likable in this movie too. Sure. Um, so it, it didn't, it just didn't work. You, you have a, a story that's ostensibly about unlikable people and everybody wants to be liked. <laughs> we'll talk about this, Nick, when we get to the Razzie game in a couple of weeks. Um, okay. But uh, they invented a Razzie category for Bruce Willis this year. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> who did, I believe the number is eight straight to video crappy action movies. I think it was oh, no. 11. Oh, goodness. Something like that. Yeah, I know. In, I know the, pa- in the past, like, few years? No, yeah. in the last calendar year. Yeah. Wow. Oh, but yeah, 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 yeah. What? Holy cats. Let me let me look this up here. Hang on just a second. Bruce oh, Willis. Jesus. Look up Apex. It's one of those like really, really notorious bad Bruce Willis films that came out recently. Okay, so let's count these here. American Siege, Fortress, <laughs> Deadlock, Apex, Survive the Game, Out of Death, Midnight in the Switchgrass, and <laughs> Cosmic Sin. Okay. Those are eight... So Films directed wow. and you know half of them star like Frank Grillo and uh, maybe Jean Claude Van Damme is in one. I'm not entirely sure, uh, but they all like feature Bruce Willis prominently on the poster, and it, he seems to be playing the same character in each. Midnight yeah. in the Switchgrass. Yes, yeah. that's worse the- than what was that? Uh, a needle in a time stack. What oh, that's that the movie? best. <laughs> or like Bonfire of the Vanities. That's also <laughs> a terrible movie name. That that. <laughs> The the movie, the movie is like. In case you forget the title of the movie, here's a a long protracted scene at the opera to remind you about the title of this movie. (laughs) Midnight in the Switchgrass. An FBI agent and Florida State officer team up to investigate a string of unsolved murder cases, starring (laughs) Bruce Willis, Emile Hirsch, and Megan Fox. Wow. Uh oh. Midnight in the Switchgrass. 24 Metacritic score. Oh my God. 24. Red Letter Media. I I wanted to say, Nico, Red Letter Media did a did a set of reviews for these movies, and oh boy, some of that footage is unbelievable. There are shots where his earpiece to feed him his lines are in clear view. (laughs) So Uh, Bruce. Uh and I think over overlooked in this movie. I think Melanie Griffith is terrible in this. Very movie. bad. Very Her voice bad. is so fucking annoying. Yeah, it's it's to the point. As someone said it, it's that point of like who's who's playing satire and who's not. Yes. And F. Murray Abraham is playing the satire. Uh, F. Murray Abraham, who is uncredited technically in this He's, movie, wow. didn't want to credit. Uh, 
I think turned yeah. it down. Yeah. 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 Wow. Uh, turned it down, but it was because of his billing, not because of anything else. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, the, uh, and, and, uh, she's maybe playing satire. I can't tell if it's or just shtick. her being a bad actress. It's that, or it's just shtick. I don't really know. Yeah. Um, she's playing her character from body double, but like in a comedy. She's, she's, Does she she's, have a Southern yeah. drawl in body double? No. Okay. No, she's playing like a, a Kentucky fried version of her body double character. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Would you think Which, it makes sense? Okay. Femme fatale, but again, like she's not, really a femme fatale here she's yeah i think as you said she's playing a goofy kentucky fried chicken version Brian those, li- those those lions and tigers really fucked her up nico yeah i know it was That's all roar's fault it's all roar's <laughs> fault yeah uh, they scalped a man um they, they scalped her <laughs> uh yeah i and again i think in a lot of movies brian De Palma, in a lot of movies especially women in brian De Palma movies get the, the short end of the stick um and he or she definitely does. Um, Depends. Sometimes yes. Sometimes no. Yeah. Uh, well, I think some. I, I think that's the good a good approximation of Brian De Palma's career. Yeah. Sometimes yes. Sometimes no. Like he, right. You know, he's doing Hitchcock. That's just that's just you know, that's what he likes to oh, do. Oh God, he would kill you. Um, <laughs> this what he, he, he is. He had, yeah, he admits it. Yeah, he's oh, yeah. doing Hitchcock. He, he, that's one of the things he came around to. I think in the beginning when people were comparing him to Hitchcock, if you listen to an interview, he was like. I am not fucking copying Hitchcock. Right? I am not. And then eventually, yes, you like, are, bro. Right. Yeah, you fucking right, are. Guys, just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. Um, well, that uh, Nico, I mentioned to you that that scene. Um, the woman who who played the the British, I guess she was the, the journalist, owner of right? Bar. I think she, she was. was a, th- I think she's a journalist. She's a journalist. Yeah. Um, she has the 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 room where Tom Hanks, the, the apartment where Tom Hanks and and what's her name meet up. Yes. Um. I, yeah. Um. The photocopy scene, scene is she, the one you're talking about. She photocopies her vagina. Yes. On the photocopier. Yeah. Yes. Shh, that was not in the book. I didn't think so. <laughs> yeah. It should have been. That scene. That scene is maybe a three minute scene. There's one piece of consequential information that comes out of it. Uh huh. That scene took nine hours to film. Oh my it might, god! It, it, it might be the best scene it, in the movie, though. <laughs> it, wait, wait, it took nine hours to shoot that. Yeah. Do you have any idea how 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 long that is for? Like a. <laughs> well, the it's copier not, ran out of toner. Nine hours. I know. <laughs> they no, no, had no, to run to Staples I'm, I'm to get more for like, ink for the for the printer. For like all the stuff you could be doing on on a film shoot for a day, you spend nine hours on that one scene. Like what? And, and for what, like, what, what purpose did that scene really serve in the grand scheme of things? Uh, Bruce Fresh Bones. underwear every take. Okay, <laughs> we're photocopying vaginas, Adam. Come That's, on. I kept thinking of the 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 scene would be. <laughs> she would, needs a flattering angle of her cooch, you know. I would have loved to have seen the scene where they actually hand off the 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 photocopied image. That would have really cracked me up, but they didn't do that. Here's she was she vagina. was Brian De Palma's girlfriend too. At the yes, time. she was. Yeah. Oh, which is weird to me that that would be the one thing he really wants to do is like, let's get this scene right. <laughs> <laughs> Got to nail it. Palma's had an interesting uh, love life in Hollywood though. He's uh, who is, uh, who is he dating for um, fucking uh, Carrie? 
was the was the actress's name? Sissy Spacek? No, no, no. No, she was a child in that movie, wasn't no, she? No, was the it, Amy Piper Irving? Piper Laurie? Oh. No. Amy Irving, yeah, yeah. I think it might the, have been that. The yeah. the the uh the best Amy friend. Uh, the Carrie's friend that, you know, supports her. Yeah, the, 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 first, the first Mrs. Gilbert? Is that? Oh, God, I can't, I can't fucking remember. I don't know. I'm trying to look up. Nancy Allen. Nancy, Nancy Allen it is? I, okay, I was right. Cool. Yes. Yeah. Um. Oh, yeah, dated Gail Ann Hurd for a while. Or was married to of, her, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Margot Kidder. <laughs> yeah. De Palma, man. Dude yeah, gets she talks, Real she stick, talks about that. She talks about that scene in the in the podcast. Yes, and she's like, she was bruised and it's sore and just in pain from all that stuff that she was doing, and there was absolutely no reason for it. And that's sort of a good encapsulation of the movies itself. Is like you go through all this stuff. There's some really good shots in it. Maybe you get to see a photocopy cooch, but it's <laughs> not worth. It. It's- you feel bruised and beaten up by the end because it's so bad i love <laughs> i love the, the one plus maybe you get a photocopy cooch at least there's that <laughs> thank god for the cooches <laughs> joe have you seen uh the De Palma documentary that noah bombach made i have not i have not. so good it's excellent so it's I, I essentially just a string of movie clips with brian De Palma narrating over it's a talking head documentary but he's the only talking head so they interview him and he sort of walks Noah Bombach through his career and they just play the clips or whatever. And one of the things that became so apparent, obviously, the, the whole theory of the documentary is that he came up with the film Bratz, George Lucas, Marty Scorsese, Steven Spielberg and he, and Francis Ford Coppola. And he was sort of the black sheep of that mm-hmm. whole group, like all of them sort of rose to a, a sort of a stature that he could never attain just because his tastes were a little off kilter compared to what the rest of them were doing, right? And they were always doing either high-minded stuff in the case of Scorsese and Coppola or just like pure straight-down-the-middle blockbuster stuff like Spielberg and Lucas, right? And throughout the entire doc, one of the recurring things you'll see are like, you know, the producers wanted to do this scene of just a bunch of characters talking in a room. But I was like, that's fucking boring. Let's add some bombs to the scene. Like, you know, some variation of that. You know, he talks about the end of of, uh, of Mission Impossible where they were going to, like, rip off all of their face masks in a, in a, in a train car. And it was going to be, like, this really dramatic reveal. And he's like, all right, we'll do your fucking train car. And then he proceeds to shoot a scene of Tom Cruise, I think, like, crawling on top of the train through a tunnel, planes crashing into trains. You know, I mean, he's just very unpretentious about all this stuff. And, you know, that his instincts are always to go there, much like Hitchcock. Like, we need to put a bomb in this. You know, mm-hmm. we need suspense. We need a driving force. You know, we, we need maybe some nudity, maybe some sex. And I think now you look at his filmography with something like Body Double or, or, um, or you know, uh, even Phantom of the Paradise to a certain extent. And you find this stuff a little trashy. Um, but, you know, I think at the time he was very wise about it. And, and he did have a, a certain eye for this stuff um, that a lot of his contemporaries didn't, which also makes... Bonfire of the Vanities, such a horrible fit for him because this is supposed to be a very smart, subtle 
commentary right. on New York City and the class system. And instead, he's like, I'm going to make a fucking movie here because I'm a movie maker. And I'm, <laughs> I'm not pretentious about my themes. You know, I'm I'm the guy in Scarface that like murders a guy in a in a shower with a chainsaw, you know. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I think I respect it. But also in, <coughs> in this particular context, I'm like, Jesus, this was a bad hire. That's that's why his filmography is so up and down for me uh-huh. is because it's like a slow build up to what would be considered prestige movies like this. And then they remember that, oh, no, it's Brian De Palma. We can't have him do that. Yeah. And after they fail, they knock him back down like, you know, Casualties of War, I thought was such a great underrated movie. Yeah. It was a bomb. Um. But it was, I thought it was a, a good pinnacle movie for him um, because it did combine all those things that, that are trashy and exploitative, but it works. Um, You're putting it in, in and then he came out and he came into so, this. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense yeah. in that, in that context. I'm not sure all of Brian De Palma's sensibilities uh, and his, his, his taste for violence is, is, is as prevalent for something like Bonfire of the Vanities. Yeah. Uh, he has one very telling quote, though, which I guess describes his ego, though. He went, he's, when in the documentary, he actually says, I think I think Bonfire of the Vanities is a fine film as long as you haven't seen the book. And I'm just going to tell you right now, Brian. <laughs> nope. No, it's not a good movie. <laughs> <Nope>. Sucks. <laughs> so in, fact, in fact, if I can read from the critics who, <laughs> who savaged this movie. I, I recall Ebert not hating it. Ebert didn't mind it um he gave it like two and a half stars i want to say okay um, siskel hated it i remember and ebert was like i think echoed a similar sentiment adam which was like you know it's well made but if you've read the book it it's not going to translate well mm. yeah. yeah that's i think that was ebert's last last line was like if you've read the book you're going to be disappointed because you'll be looking for everything you missed uh-huh. um, and if you read the book you're just going to be bored yeah <laughs> Um, that seems to have summed it up pretty well. I, I, I was bored to tears most of the movie. Yeah. Most of the way through, yeah. It, it's amazing to me how conventional the movie he ended up making, though, especially that end part where, like, Dad yeah. comes in and is like, I love you, and you have to do what's right. And even that 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 music cue drove me nuts because that was like a fucking Family Ties music cue That's as they're sitting in an empty apartment with a fire going. Yeah. Uh, and dad with his big caterpillar eyebrows, the lion of the, the <laughs> law firm is like, I know I've been neglectful and now is my chance to make it up to you. And I love you. And they hug and uh, the music swells. And then he's like, do what you have to do. And then the next scene, everybody's in court. It's like, it's like a fucking Adam Sandler movie where every character <laughs> gets to support everybody else. Yeah. They're all in court. And then, uh, the dad sitting there and, and just watching him. And as Tom Hanks does his stuff, he's like, yeah, That's my boy. <laughs> proud of you, son <laughs> yeah. for lying in court. <laughs> Meanwhile, Hanks is there with the tape recorder has not submitted this as evidence, by the way. <laughs> right. I mean, I would know. need to probably, again, I'm no legal scholar would probably need to be put through the discovery process. I think you would have to log that tape in some way, shape or form and let the defense, you know, look at it. Yeah. It I did. don't think I don't think a, a judge would be like, oh, is this tape yours? OK, that's the only thing we need to make it admissible in yeah, court. Exactly. No, not only that, but I am comfortable declaring a verdict right now yeah. based yes. on this evidence that has not been properly vetted. 
So he just decides we're done here. And then everybody in the crowd is allowed to just hoot and holler at the bench without being thrown out of the courtroom. <laughs> yep. Uh, and then he gives a monologue and we're done. Mm-hmm. Who knew? You could just perjure yourself. <laughs> Who knew? It's that easy. I kind of want to go commit a crime now so I can just get a nice Morgan Freeman monologue. I know. It's not a bad idea. Yeah. Uh, which was which was a last second replacement because originally it was supposed to be Morgan Freeman fleeing with fleeing a rioting mob of of people uh, with Tom Hanks and grabbing the sword from the Statue of Justice to defend themselves against this riotous mob. <laughs> Where was that scene? <laughs> uh, in fact, the there's sword I think there's of a, Give me Fuck that yeah. movie. Give me I that want scene. That. Honestly, I, show me that. Yeah, I think that's... there's. I think there's actually a photo still of that scene. Oh, uh, I think it's in the book, where you see Morgan Freeman with this giant sword, Tom Hanks cowering behind him. They're at the feet of the Statue of Justice. As a he, uh, as Morgan Freeman's still out. playing a judge. Yeah. As he, what? <laughs> Let me find this. Oh my yeah, god! It, it was, and it was the the original. And Morgan Freeman was a last minute replacement too, because originally they wanted Walter Matthau, mm-hmm. and Walter Matthau was like, "Give me a million dollars," and they were like, "Ooh, no thanks." Uh, and then it was Alan Arkin, like Nico said, and they filmed some scenes, but then they got rid of them because people. I, I don't were think like, they even. I don't even think they filmed anything. I oh, think really? they, they just paid them whatever it was, $160,000 for two days or for eight days work, I think is what it was going to be. And then Brian De Palma was watching the Oscars, driving Miss Daisy one best picture that year. And he had this revelation of like, this judge needs to be a black man, which like, okay. Obviously the story sounds kind of silly when you put it that way. I do think that his instinct was right in that you can't have a white guy necessarily chewing out the black defendants in this movie in the way that Morgan Freeman is able to do it. So I do think like that was a pretty wise move. Um, I do think, though, with that ending monologue, the casting becomes a lot worse, you know, and it actually plays into more stereotypes. See, but that was a that was a replacement. That wasn't even the original ending when he was considering Morgan Freeman for that. Okay. Uh, okay. So, yeah. All right. So it was it was that stupid sword fight ending. Um, but so, so he, but he comes to the revelation that it needs to be a black guy. So they end up essentially right. firing Alan Arkin, but of course he wasn't going to give the money back. So they had to just pay him. Um, yeah. And th- there was a sp- also supposed to be the judge that the character was based on. He was an actual judge in the Bronx audition for the part and apparently right. did very well. And they were thinking of actually using him, Wow! but they didn't end up doing it. But go, go ahead. What were you saying? Oh no, that was that was you were spot on. He was a Jewish judge in the Bronx. Yes. Hmm. Yeah. Cool. So that would have been interesting. That being said, Morgan Freeman, I also think poorly cast. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. I just think, I think really bad. the the only good casting were the character as, actors around everybody else who kind of got the joke. Geraldo Rivera. Oh no. <laughs> God no. That's one of those things that's like, let's put this in a certain time that just does not work. Like holy shit when he popped in i i completely forgot he was spit in the movie. When he i did a in, spit take like, when Geraldo <laughs> showed up <laughs> Ugh. um 
And George Plimpton is, has a cameo too. I don't know if you know who that is, but uh, I, I don't. Who is that? He was a literary figure. Um, he was editor of one of those very like left leaning liberal journals back in the sixties and seventies. Um, Paper Tiger. Um, okay, got it, got it. Yeah, and he has a two two part cameo at the at the bar, um, which I thought was actually a pretty good cameo because it just showed the pompacity of of that circle. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I guess it, paper everything lion, was just, Oh, paper lion. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. All good. Right. Cause it was Detroit lions. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, it's just, a, everything was just wrong. Every instinct that they followed was just wrong in this movie. Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah. Let's see what other, what other scenes did we want to shout out here? I think we, we dragged this poor cast through the mud enough. Ah, uh, <laughs> obviously what? the Bronx stuff is, is horrible. Joe, were you living in New York at the time when the movie came out? Yeah. No, no, I was in Connecticut. Okay. And so uh, my family, you... my family's from the Bronx though. And so we would mine. go visit. So yeah. Yeah. It was not, it was not like this at all. <laughs> no. We know we didn't, we didn't uh, have to get out to move flaming tires or, yeah. you know, when we parked our car, it wasn't immediately beaten with a bat. Stripped yeah. Down. I mean, it was also like a fairly, uh, your family is also Italian and mine is too. I mean, it was also a fairly Italian neighborhood. I mean, the Arthur Avenue area is dominated by Italians and, and Jews too. There's a bunch of Jews in, in the Bronx too. So yeah. also that idea that it's like, like, I think there's a line in there where it's like the Bronx is the jungle. Like she, like Melanie Griffin yes. actually describes uh, it as yeah. the jungle. First of all, entirely racist, but also like factually incorrect, you know? And the racism would have made sense if it was the better satire. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Cause she calls them natives too at one point. Yeah. 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 Um, I wonder, you know, in the context of looking at these movies, and again, going back to American Psycho, American Psycho came out just about 10 years after the book was published. Mm-hmm. This came out three years after, three to four years after the book oh, was published. Very quick, yeah. Wow. I just wonder about the the length of time when you look back on those time periods. So Bonfire, the book, was a, a sort of indictment of the 80s as a decade. And the movie was not, was not yeah uh american psycho the book was the same and the movie then had the luxury of being 20 years removed from the decade so i wonder about about that time and if it would have made any difference if you made this movie now looking back at that time period would would you make the movie would it matter and would it be a better movie well i mean uh, any movie other than this would be a better movie. Yeah, but I, I yeah. wouldn't, I wouldn't stick with the perspective characters. That was one of my big issues with it is that I had really no desire to look at it through the lens of these people, especially given how sympathetic it frequently was towards these people. I mean, I would have much rather had like done like an alternate perspective story, I guess, look at the, the people who were victimized by Tom Hanks's character and you know everybody else and see how they would have dealt with that I guess and but I mean th- I mean then it's not really a satire I guess but I don't know I my, my other issue is that I'm not particularly interested in, in this story just in general I don't care for these people I don't care for the satirical edge of them and you know I'm fine I'm fine you know doing something that's tearing them down but yeah I don't know I don't know it's <laughs> 
Yeah, kind of, kind of using a, a a pickaxe when you could really be using a spoon. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> to I, I sort suppose. of get this point across. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think to a certain extent, it's kind of a hard novel to adapt. You need someone uh, with a finer touch to adapt it. I think we we've said though throughout the whole thing, like technically, this is pretty well made. Like, there's a lot yeah. of like interesting visual shots here, and a lot of like classic De Palma shots too. Yeah, like, there are, are overhead shots of like the the, the window on a ceiling. Um, which like reminded me a lot of Phantom of the Paradise and it's like a really yeah that really great like spinning shot where they're talking over the phone yes which I'm not but really to, sure what they were doing there but it was interesting I, I didn't anyway. get it I, <laughs> yeah. it, it, it's it, it's you remember it at least but yeah. again to to counteract that point too Nico it has what I think is possibly the most useless split screen I've ever seen in any of <laughs> yes. the movies <laughs> yes I was like okay Bama you're just using this to use it right he only what, does it once though. It's so bad and yeah. so tacky and so pointless. I'm like, okay, convince me that you couldn't have just cut back to that shot of the crowd. You can't. You you can't convince me that you needed to do the split screen. Yeah, it's impossible. Or, or you know, Geraldo saying, okay, here's how the shot's gonna work. <laughs> uh, if only Brian De Palma had a camera available to show us how the shot would have worked. <laughs> Maybe that would be more interesting than Geraldo fucking Rivera describing how the shot's going to work. Exactly. It just, it's just like. I personally would like Geraldo to, Rivera to be the voice of my GPS. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I want him instructing me at all times. Not, not Mike Francesa. Oh, fair enough. Come on, dude. Oh, jeez. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> 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 Maybe them having an argument about which way to go. <laughs> Left, no right. <laughs> oh, that's a good. Use your nougat. <laughs> this, I, this is. I, I appreciate the drops that you guys have incorporated into these shows. Oh, that's good. Uh, <laughs> uh, the the <laughs> uh, just to give you an idea. So I, I mentioned the 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 critics. Um, Variety said that the caricatures are so crude and the revelation so unenlightening of the human condition that the satire is about as socially incisive as an entry into the Police Academy series. <laughs> wow. All right. uh, Owen Gleiberman of Entertainment Weekly called it one of the most indecently bad movies of the year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, Joe, did you see EW no longer doing print? Yeah. Yeah, well, they those, shut that down. All of them are moving. Rolling Stone is no EW. Um, yeah, yeah, I saw that. I, um, I, I actually think it's kind of appropriate because this was a like EW movie. It's very EW in that around that time, that's when hype culture started mm-hmm. really sinking its teeth into the movie industry. And you had all yeah. of these like behind the scenes, you know, uh, reporters embedded on the sets of these things. This was one of the first examples of like a, a reporter embedded on the set in the hopes of there being a positive thing written about them. <laughs> Uh, but it was right. the complete opposite, you know. Yeah. In fact, Apama was like, "Just tell her what she what's the truth is. Just go with the truth." Right. Because that old Hollywood system of like we have to make everything look good. Here's um, here, 
Here's the other thing about De Palma, though, and why like he, he didn't make it big as big as the other people is that he's he was constantly shooting himself in the foot like that. Yes. And perhaps being a little too honest. It's like, well, that's because, you know, Spielberg is obviously like a like an amazing filmmaker, but he's also a very political filmmaker and he knows how to talk his way out of situations. He's a wonderful businessman, whereas De Palma's not that guy whatsoever. Right. <laughs> and and Nico, that's a really good point, too, that. um how much of this was insider gossip and, you know, how much of this sort of uh, EW bullshit, you know, grading system. I know you guys talked about critics mm-hmm. on a previous show, but how much of this sort of sculpted the way that these movies were made by that, that late eighties to mid nineties studio system before mm-hmm. you had the, the rise of the um, Indies, like you said. Um, yeah, yeah. I do wonder. That- yeah. If, if this, book if the devil's candy sort of caused studio heads to look around and say all right let's only let journalists in that we know that we can control sure whether that be like the ain't it cool news or uh you know or entertainment weekly or i listen i personally grew up reading entertainment weekly i got that that was one of my first magazine subscriptions i read the whole thing front to back every fucking week but like i do look at that now thinking like well this is not really the best format to discuss film you know and it, it it more rivaled a like a piece of political propaganda than it did like a piece of journalism you sure. know where it was like everything was overwhelmingly positive here are photos from the set of phantom of the menace you know like this is you know here's uh you know why you need to be really excited for the fourth twilight movie uh and i wonder if like Bonfire of the Vanities was such a colossal disaster and was so... Because here's the thing. Here's the other thing I wanted to mention earlier. I'm not sure if Devil's Candy doesn't exist, we would be talking about Bonfire of the Vanities in the Mm. same way we are now. Probably not. You know, I, I think like there are movies like The Room, there are movies like Battlefield Earth that are so obviously incompetent and horrible. And those are you know sort of mythologized for being just technically bad but this is just like a big studio flop and there are plenty of big studio flops that aren't written about in such painstaking detail and i'm sure there are other sets where worse shit happens um and i do wonder if that was a bridge too far for some studios and they're like okay we're never gonna let this happen again yeah but i wonder if it's a one-two punch too with um with the book and the movie because I think there's two definitive behind the scenes books that I grew up reading. One of them is devil's candy. The other one is um, final cut, which is about heaven's gate, Mm. a movie, not the cult. Sure. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Heaven's gate, which is actually a good movie. It's a bloated long movie, but it's a good movie. I've never Mm -hmm. seen it. And it was a victim of like bad buzz. Um, But the book came out afterwards and the book almost was like, yeah, the movie failed before the book came out. And here's what was wrong with it. Movie wise. I think it was a little less invasive than Devil's Candy. Mm. Um, and so it was a little bit different. But I think those were both big warning shots for the industry. Sure. And then you have EW come out and you have Premier Magazine, which I read as a kid, as, as, an, as a teenager. It was like my Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, which just meant I was too stupid to read actual trade magazines. Right. Um, but it made it made it into a horse race, and you know you have EW and Premier 
like cheerleading everything, but Premier was also like boiling everything down to numbers. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I see. Um, so you had a public that was like, well, you know, Aunt Sally out in, you know, Iowa was like, ooh, look at the box office on Bonfire of the Vanities. That's not very good. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, I think it's. And I'm not sure that was something anyone ever thought about. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I, I think these, these sort of, the, the new media landscape broke open before they had a chance to react to it or control it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm sure that that led to us still talking about Bonfire of the Vanities 32 years on, you know? Mm. Wow. Holy shit. 32. Yeah. Anyway, rest in peace, Entertainment Weekly. <laughs> <laughs> go, go fuck yourself, Entertainment Weekly. <laughs> No, I I seriously like I credit EW for making me interested in pop culture, but I I also do sort of blame them for me getting into pop culture in the wrong way a lot of the time. Yeah. You know, I think I blame them for some of your taste, Nico. Oh, for sure. <laughs> yeah. No, but here I am at ten years old, and I'm following like TV ratings and box office numbers. Right. Yeah. And it's like yep. this is a moment when I'm supposed to be like really into Swords and Shields. That's a great. Oh my god! You know Did I, that. That's what it is. No, but really, <laughs> like, because I've always been trying to figure out, like, what's your deal with these types of movies? Because yeah. they're really good movies, but why do you hate them so much? Sure. <laughs> okay. EW presents a summer preview where you should get hyped about a Serbian film. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not talking about a Serbian film, goddammit. it. <laughs> but, but yes, you should get excited for a Serbian film. No, it's a, I, one, it's a no, wonderful I, piece of cinema. Yes, you're you're right, Adam. We're like, I think most kids at age ten. Put it this way, I was not watching like hard R-rated horror movies either. You know, like no. you were watching schlocky shit like Friday the Thirteenth, and you're like, this shit is cool. There are boobs and stabbings in it, and I think that's the way like a lot. And I know DeFeo, you have like a similar taste in like schlocky, campy stuff. Yeah, and I'm you know getting exposed to some of this shit and i'm first reading the reviews in entertainment weekly or looking at its Mm. box office returns and i'm looking at it from like this industry perspective which is what psychos do (laughs) but there i am at 10 years old and i i think like yeah i i I sometimes have a hard time like letting loose and just enjoying something stupid because it's stupid you know i was into plenty of stupid shit back then but um yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm a warped person, I guess. See that that was that was me in when we first got cable when I was a kid, and I was like staying up late. That's probably where a lot of my schlocky love comes from because all they were playing on cable was the cheap movies that they could buy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would stay up all hours of the night watching this this horseshit being shoveled at me. <laughs> and then when I got a uh, when Premiere hit the local drugstore newsstands, I remember going and. Kids used to cut out um, stuff from magazines and put it up in their lockers or put it up, you know, on their books. I was the only kid in my school who had like a caricature of Jeffrey Katzenberg I'd cut out from Premier <laughs> Magazine on my locker door. That's your tiger beat? That was my tiger the beat. Yeah, like, oh, man. Look at Jeffrey. He's so dreamy and his suspenders. Uh, DreamWorks is about to change animation. <laughs> DreamWorks is gonna kick Disney's ass. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I know. Like I I when I was 10, 11, the American Film Institute put out their second list of the hundred best movies of all time. 
And that to me, like some kids like would collect baseball cards and like look at baseball stats. And that's what I did. I followed these lists and around the time, like I, I just watched most of these movies because I was really into the AFI list. So I like watched Casablanca and watched Raging Bull and watched, you know, uh, Sound of Music and, and whatever. And uh, yeah, I'm broken for it. Meanwhile, friggin' Nick is, you know, the two of us are in middle school and he's like really into Dane Cook or whatever. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> and I'm like, you fucking moron. Like, watch some Bergman for God's sake, you know? Watch some Bergman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. By the way, yeah, Nico, I don't know. I'd say I was raised pretty normal. <laughs> yeah. I feel pretty normal. You are pretty. Did you yeah. did you not have a Jeffrey Kasselberg caricature on your locker? I did not. <laughs> so, no. Anybody Spielberg? No. Michael no. Eisner. Michael Eisner. <laughs> no, I liked Spider Man when I was a kid. Spot. Oh, that's the IP of uh, Sony. Yeah. yeah. No, I know that one. The IP. Uh, yeah, I couldn't <laughs> have told you that when I was a kid. Last box office. What no. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I was gonna. I was gonna say, Nico, uh, about your Bergman comment. You should watch more Bergman. Yeah, I, uh, yeah. I, <laughs> you should actually watch more Bergman. I should. I'm not a Bergman guy. I'm oh, not God. a Bergman guy. Uh, okay. What else about Bonfire of the Vanities? Well, it's a piece of shit. Yeah. It's bad. Yeah. Where did this title come from? Tell me. <laughs> uh, this movie no. title is the worst title I've ever heard. The vanities um, are these people, and they're 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 in a putting bonfire. them on on the bonfire, and you know it's the shittiest like <laughs> fucking. Yeah. Isn't that the name of an opera? Is that actually what it's from? No, uh, the title came from the. I'm trying to remember what century it was, but it was from an actual thing people did where the priests, I believe it was a priest, called them out and had them destroy the stuff they loved. Um, let me see the exact thing. It was uh, 1497 in Florence, Italy. Uh, Dominican priests ordered the burning of objects that the church authorities considered sinful, such as cosmetics, mirrors, books, and art. Hmm. So, oh, okay. It was, there was, no, there was no reference to that in the film. Literally doesn't happen at all. In this was film. that <laughs> opera, the Don Juan in Hell opera um, reference there? And then the poet who was only interesting because he had AIDS. <laughs> I do uh, love yeah. that line. To be that was funny. That was pretty funny. <laughs> You'll you love know. him. He's white. He has, you know, he's a poet. He has AIDS. <laughs> uh, yeah. That whole scene referenced that a little bit. Um, well, heavy handedly. Isn't bit. that uh, what's his face from my dinner with Andre? Yeah, it's Andre. Yeah, Andre. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the unsung <laughs> hero to me was was Saul Rubinek as the uh, assistant DA. I do love Saul Rubinek in most mm. things. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he's a hoot. It made me want to go watch. It made me want to go watch Dick. Watch what? Dick. What's Dick? <sighs> well, Nico. Uh, if I have to explain it to you, Nico, then you were not raised right. <laughs> Um, <laughs> no, no references to it in Entertainment Weekly. <laughs> <laughs> what was the what was the bo on it from premiere? Um, it was a movie I think nineteen ninety two came out in ninety four. Kirsten Dunst, uh, Dan Hedaya played Richard Nixon. Nineteen ninety nine. Oh, ninety nine. Sorry, 
the retelling of the Watergate scandal, but from the viewpoint of two teenage girls. It's one of my favorite movies. Will Ferrell plays Bob Woodward. Yep. <laughs> what the fuck? What the hell? <laughs> Who pitched this film? I've honestly never heard of this movie. <laughs> it's one of those movies where people don't know how to sell it. It's I think it's a very funny, well put together movie. A young Ryan Reynolds? Which means nothing. As Nick is like, oh, well, Joe thinks it's a well put together movie. No, then no thanks. <laughs> no, I, I'm not criticizing. It just sounds insane. <laughs> it, it does. It does. It, that's why they had such a hard time selling it. Jesus Christ. Well, that'll be your next movie on here today. <laughs> who, who, wants, who wants a retelling of Watergate from the perspective of two teenage girls? Like, who, what? She was, oh, God, I was, okay, so it's funny you said Kirsten Dunst. She was in Bonfire of the Vanities, too. Yes. I was I was like, wait a second. I know that face. Who is this little girl? And that's who it is. I know Where? those teeth. Which little girl? This, she was oh, the daughter. She, yeah. Kirsten Dunst is the daughter in this? Yeah, that was Kirsten Dunst. What? Yeah. Wow. And you shall know her by her teeth. Yep. Wow. I had no <laughs> yep. idea. Uh-huh. Wild, wild. There you go. Yeah, that is wow, you're right. Damn. Uh I think the the thing that best sums this movie up is that it meant to lampoon and satire the excess and greed of the decades and ended up just being another bloated piece of pop culture tripe. Um that just fell in the same trap as everything else from that time period. Mm -hmm. Felt like the very thing it was sending up a lot of the time. Yeah. yeah. Not good. Yeah. Not good. Obviously if you're a, if you're a fan of how movies are made, read the devil's candy or listen to the podcast. I can recommend the podcast. Um, I, I don't think you need to watch this movie though. No. Yeah. You, you, you really. actually don't. I mean the, the, the podcast has a pretty good job of summarizing the actual plot, which I, I think we kind of failed to do, but that podcast is the place to go if you want uh, to, to, to hear what that's about. Um, but yeah, th there are so many stories. Um, for example, like the, the shot of the airplane coming in oh, was yeah. a, a much toiled over disaster mm -hmm. of, of a shoot um, and it's cost them a lot of money to do the second unit director thought that that would be his moment to sort of uh, you know springboard into a, a more lucrative directing career uh, didn't work out that way um, yeah there, there are plenty of examples of just like excess I think it cost them like a million dollars to build the elevator that was what? used in the movie yeah a lot of nonsense uh Go listen to that pod. Uh, the name of the podcast is called The Plot Thickens. And every season they do a new sort of bit of Hollywood lore. Um, it's good yeah, stuff. De Devil's Candy worth a read um, if you can get a hold of it. Um, is that yeah. your favorite behind the scenes story? My favorite? No, Nothing But Trouble is my favorite behind the scenes story. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I believe we covered that in episode. I guess that's true. Uh, yeah. Yeah. What was that number I, episode 105? I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. Alien, Alien 3 is my favorite. Probably. Yeah. I love Alien 3 as well. DeFeo, what's your favorite film book? Ooh. Oh, gosh. Uh, it would have to be the one. It was a, a book. I forgot the name of it. Even It was one about the Godfather. Hmm. Oh, is it The Offer? Is that what it's called? No, no. It was actually about the filming of... It was about the filming of, it was like an anecdotal book written in a terrible way. And the author decided to put sometimes like jokey titles 
as the chapter titles. Huh. And one of them was uh, the one I can't forget is they were hiring Italian people and the, the chapter was more advantages for Italian actors, which shortens his <laughs> <What>? mafia. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, Sounds like a great read. Sounds like a real page turner. Yeah, no, it was, it was so bad that I was like, this is, it was a great movie, but it was a bad book. Um, (laughs) I mean, I'd have to say devil's candy is up there. uh, And um, William gold, uh, William Goldman adventures in the screen trade adventures in screen trade. And then which lie did I tell? I say those as, as one, because which lie did I tell was so great because he fucked everybody's mind by like, there was a whole big thing that they thought he actually wrote. Um, oh, what was that movie? Uh, the one where Matt Damon plays the savant. Uh, Goodwill Hunting. Yes, thank you. <laughs> yes, people yes. were like, oh, "Of course, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck couldn't write this movie." Right. Yeah. Well, the story there is that Damon and Affleck had this three-act script involving Will Hunting being recruited by the CIA. Mm. And like the whole like second and third act are about the adventures of Will Hunting and like this espionage thriller. And they brought the script to William Goldman and William Goldman read the whole thing and said, the movie is your first act. That's that's the movie right there. Just cut out the all, all the other bullshit. And they did that and expanded it. And that's how you got Good Will Hunting. Yeah, th- there is a little debate about how much input he actually had uh, there. But yeah, adventures in the screen trade for my money is the best like if you want to like get into the film business or like you just want some like good gossipy stories or whatever mm. like he's so honest in that book yeah um, yeah cool okay bonfire of the vanities let's play a game Uh, who are we doing? Willis? Willis? We could do Willis. I want, I want, to, I want you guys to come to a decision because I, I need to pee really, 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 really <laughs> bad. Willis! All right, so let's... Bruce, let, so, I believe, is his first name. Okay, Bruce. Mr. Bruce. Bruce okay, Willis. I, 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 I think Mr. I know... Mr. <laughs> I think I know who that is. Delivering How many... A, Bruce deliberate Bill. about how much this guy costs and I'll be I'll be right back with my number. Oh no, Adam, you can't leave until the show is done. Uh I need to uh, go, guys. To, <laughs> hmm, hold on, I need to think about this for How a much is a Drew Carey worth again? Oh, Drew Carey. I, don't, I can't hear Nico at all, but I will tell you Drew Carey is worth 195 million. Hmm, is that American dollars? US dollars. Yes. Okay. Uh, oh, oh, all right. Adam's left. <laughs> Let me get my cornflakes out. Hang on. I still can't hear Nico. No. Which is interesting. Uh, no, I think it's a, uh, it might be 190 million, somewhere around there. 190, 195. I can't remember now. I think it's 190. I'm second guessing myself. Uh, I oh, can't hear you, Nico. Is that, he's, he's right. taking off his shirt. What's he doing? What? What? You don't need to take your shirt off for this test, Nico. Nico, what are you? Oh my goodness! I didn't know you were that flexible. Oh my god! Wow! Did you have that's, surgery recently? That's a talent. 
Wow. Oh, what what's that tattoo? <laughs> Is that why you got your bottom two ribs removed? <laughs> That's impressive. Which which way is that finger pointing? I can't. <laughs> I'm cutting all that out. Uh, That's fine. That's fine. It's for us. What? Well, Bruce he could just—he blew himself. It was amazing. What? Bruce <laughs> Willis. Uh, how many Bruce will I to get to one Drew Carey? And Drew Carey's 195. Something like right? that. Who the fuck knows? Yeah, yeah, not like we stick yeah. to the rules of it anyway. Just gets a number. Um, a hundred million for Bruce Willis. Two Bruces. Sure. Two Bruces. Get, you think it's two Bruces to get to one Drew? Roughly? I guess. Well, yeah, almost. Yeah, a little less than two. Well, yeah. All right. Let's see. Nick, what do you think? I think Bruce Willis is worth fifteen million dollars. No. No. So no. I'm gonna put him at twelve Bruce's. Is that right? Is that math check out? About right? twelve Bruce's. That puts him at about 180 million. So we'll say thirteen Bruce's. Okay. okay. What is that? 195 divided by thirteen? Yeah. Fifteen million dollars. <laughs> yeah, that's oh. exactly what I said. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Um I mean he is clearly a little strapped for cash given his recent output and don't forget the planet hollywood stuff i was just about to mention that he is a founding member of planet hollywood with uh arnold schwarzenegger sly stallone and his ex-wife demi moore correct yeah and he's had a couple i think his ex-wife um gosh yeah i'm gonna say it's higher i'm gonna say i'm gonna say 25 i would say 25 i was i was gonna say 75 Oh, that's a nice spread. I yeah. like that. I'm comfortable with that spread. Mm. All right. Nick, you're saying 15 million. Joe is yep. saying 25 million. I'm saying 75 million. Adam says $100 million for Bruce Willis, the actual net worth of which is $250 million. Oh wow. Adam Hall, you just won this week's edition of How Many Drew Carey. Yeah. For, wow. for me, this was either really high or really low. You know? Yeah. It's yeah, one or yeah. the other. Why the hell is he doing those fucking Apex movies and shit? That's a good question. He wants to be an action star. You but know? he's but he's an old weathered scrotum of a man. I know, but <laughs> <laughs> he, uh, he wants to be the next Kiefer Sutherland, you know what I mean? It's it's <laughs> it's, it's all penance for Bonfire of the Vanities. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Nick, uh, I'd like to comment. You've had so many cats coming in and out of the frame. It's ridiculous. They are, they are just losing their minds in the past 10 minutes. They're like, like they don't know where they want to be. Seriously, what are they doing? It's it's a jungle in your in your room there. I only have two cats. I don't know where I, I know, but from. it's like I feel like every other second a cat because cats aren't usually this active, in my opinion, or at least my no. experience. Like, you know what it is? It's because Michaela's at work and they want to be around people. Yes. Uh, but they don't know what to like do that. with themselves. My cat my cat will just sit there and listen. You mm. know? They don't even like, want to snuggle or anything. They just want to listen. He listens yeah. to all your problems, Nika. <laughs> yeah, my cat is actually the most frequent listener of this podcast. Is that? <laughs> it's my I thought I, I thought I saw your cat on the subway riding, listening along. <laughs> <laughs> At the grocery store. AirPods in, yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> oh, I Actually, just got I, a message I, on Discord. I don't know if you saw uh, it, Nick. Uh, no. Because uh, uh, John Blood in the chat said that he listens to Two Cents while grocery shopping every Saturday. <laughs> and so we talked about him today and gave him advice what to pick up at the grocery store. And apparently that did not get to him in time. So uh, he'll have to. Pick oh, up he has a Meyer. Oh, Meyer. I have a Meyer nearby. What is Meyer? It's a grocery <laughs> store. Hmm. Yeah. Never heard of it. Out here in Ohio, we have Meyer and Kroger and all sorts of made up words. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> Meyer. My favorite, my favorite chain is Ralph's out in California. Because it's just, who wants to go to a place that's like that? I'm going to go pick up some stuff at Ralph's. Is there a Ralph's Ralph. around here? Yeah. Yeah. Only, where's a local where's a local Ralph's? I, I I I only associate it with the Big Lebowski where they go to get the coffee can for Donnie's ashes. Yes. Yeah. Is there yeah. a Ralph's around here? Yeah. Yep. What's the it's uh good. what's the one in like the Carolinas? Like something lion or Food Lion. Food Lion. Food lion. Yeah. That's the yeah. dumbest name. By a mile, if you shop at Food Lion, unsubscribe. Don't listen to this podcast. <laughs> You're not you I'm no a big, friend of mine. We forbade you. I'm a big Food Lion fan. Whenever I, like, I travel down south, that's that's the grocery store. That's like my you vacation like food grocery lion? store. What kind I of do. maniac are you? I, I like the Come. layout in Food Lion. It's big. I, yeah, I like Food Lion. Where are you going on vacation? Down south. Oh, Disney? No, Food Lion. No, food <laughs> no it's, he's talking about our friend's beach house. I know exactly. Mm. Right. Yeah, is that what you're talking about? Yeah, Every time you guys go there, that's the only place close by. It's like 40 minutes away. It's the only grocery <laughs> store. Yeah, <laughs> it's a nightmare. <laughs> uh, do you guys? Yeah, topic for another day. What's your Finish favorite that. grocery store? <laughs> <laughs> What's your favorite grocery store? I, I'm, favorite I'm grocery really store. into Kroger. I'm really okay. into Kroger, actually. Uh, I guess by default for me, it would have to be Stop and Shop. I mean. Boo. I don't know what else to say. What do you want me to say? Boo. Aldi, at least. No, no. Trader uh, Joe's. I like Trader Joe's spot. a lot, too. Oh, fuck off with your Trader Joe nonsense. No, I actually like it. No, it's just really, it's like actually very inexpensive, and I how, like their food. How can you like Aldi, Nico? Especially you. It's like, it's all off-brand shit that it you is, wouldn't. It is. No, I don't like Aldi. Uh, <laughs> I'm just saying, I was going to say. Now, in England, in, in England, Aldi is their stop and shop, so yeah, that's that a little is, different. It is. So. Uh, yeah, Michaela I used to shop at all these in England too. I think you guys what? studied abroad at the same school, right? Who? Michaela Mi- and you. She went to UCLan. Yeah. Wow. Awesome. She was just th- yeah, no, yeah. She was just there like a few years before you, obviously. Oh, but. cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. Yeah, loved it there. Yeah. Um, what's your favorite? See, grocery shop, store? It's Shoprite, but that's because like yeah. a plastic bag in my world world is a Shoprite bag. And I'll talk to people not from the region and I'll say, can I get a ShopRite bag? And they go, what the hell are you talking about? I always went to Big Y when I was in Connecticut. Yeah, Big Y is way yeah. local. Yeah, Big y is that good. is hella Shop- local. Yeah, Shop- no, Big Y is, uh, they, they're a chain. They're are up they? in their northeast chain, yeah. Yeah, oh, they're in New England. They're just Connecticut. It's true. No, no. Yeah. They're not very big, but. Yeah. Stop, and, more... shop. Stop and Shop for me because of their, their can-can. Every year they have that That's commercial. That's ShopRite. Oh, ShopRite. Oh, sorry. Did I say Stop and Shop? I meant yeah. ShopRite. Yeah. yeah. Mm. I'm a little more interested in the Walmart Target question, personally. Target. I always find that funny. Target. 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 Yeah. Target. Yeah. I mean, one is Kabul and one is Dubai, you know? So I think I'd rather take Target. I think you in the past have defended Walmart, though. <laughs> I defend the, the, yeah, the cost of 
shopping at Walmart. I do not defend the experience, experience. of shopping. No, yeah. which is very unpleasant. <laughs> very unpleasant. Well, Walmart has the better uh, movie bargain bin, though. Very true. Very, very true. Can't yeah. top that $5 movie bargain bin. No, I agree with that. Cool. All right. I can't believe we're still going. This is yeah, insane. Joe, <laughs> <laughs> like thank the movie, you. The movie was so bad that we just need something to, to finish it off. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're talking about fucking Walmart and Target. <laughs> Thanks, Joe. Uh, no, thank you for having me. And uh, Nick, I'm coming for your pots and pans, man. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, I saved that for last because I'm going to surprise you one day. Forgot about the rivalry. That's right. I, I really it's like the wish Red Sox I, Yankees here. Oh man. <laughs> I really, really wish we had sent Joe some pots and pans. Yeah. Oh, I need to send you some. God, that's funny. For the next time you're on. Yeah. If you do get them from uh, Target, please. <laughs> <laughs> Not a problem. Uh all right. We'll be back next week with God knows what. Documentary mm. month around the corner. We gotta do that oh, at yeah. some point. Mm-hmm. Uh send your recommendations for that. We're always desperate. And I love you. That's it. Until next time. You've all been so very, very naughty. No. No.